You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Mary Robinette Kowal. Her new novel is Shades of Milk and Honey. Thank you for joining me, Mary. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Mary, you know, as I heard you read this book in a flawless British accent, (laughs) I I have to ask myself, when you're writing, do you feel like you're writing in a British accent? Um, that would be a yes and a no. I mean, when I was writing this particular book, I was alternating between Jane Austen. I would read a chapter of Persuasion and then write a chapter. So her voice was, I was doing that deliberately to have her voice infect me. So um, I, I found myself, even in my emails, it would show up, um, you know, eschewing contractions and then using words like eschew. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I am not conscious of it in my head as being a British accent. It's just the way it should sound. When you're going back and forth between Jane Austen and your own voice, that's a pretty powerful magnetic pull. How do you pull all the way back to yourself? Well, it's um, I, I use other people's books as, um, I guess, as a catalyst in some ways, to, to switch voices. Um, one of the things coming from, from a puppetry background uh, is that I was often having to design things in other people's styles, which involves breaking it down and recognizing what makes that person specific and what what is the thing that when people are looking at it is the thing that no one else does. Um, so once you recognize that, then you can add it to your, you can do the same thing with writing. Um, And when you know what that thing is that makes, you know, someone specifically them, you can add it. And then if you catch yourself doing it, you can take it out. The other thing you can do is read something that is completely opposite from that to, um, as a scrubber, kind of a palate cleanser. And so sometimes I'll do that. Talk about doing the kind of research that's necessary for for writing this kind of novel. <laughs> um, it's fascinating. Uh, what I do for writing something like this is I I, um, I read a lot of stuff from the period. I try as much as possible to go with primary sources um, because uh, I don't necessarily want someone else's lens on on something. I just want something from the period. So I I try to read as much primary source stuff as I can. And then then I do what I call spot research. So if, for instance, there's a dinner scene, and I know that there's an order of precedence, you know, and I know that from broader research, but I have no idea what the order of precedence is. So I do spot research. I'm like, okay, so I need to know that for this scene. And so I research the order of precedence, but I don't need to research the order of precedence for anything other than the characters in that scene. You know, it's like I don't need to know what you would do if an archbishop comes in because there's no archbishop. So that's what I mean when I'm talking about spot research. You know, I can tell you very detailed things. And then there's other stuff that I don't know. And, and there, there's, uh, there are period errors in this. Um, some of them, a few of them are deliberate uh, because I thought it would be easier for a modern audience. And a couple of them are 
total accidents that I found out afterwards. Like the uh, the word hello, which um, is in the uh, the cutting that you heard. I caught it everywhere else in the novel and missed it in the first chapter, naturally. Um, and it doesn't exist yet. It's not a word. It doesn't appear in literature until 1833. Wow. Who knew? You did. I, I knew. And that was the thing that drove me crazy about that one is that I knew that. <laughs> That one I knew and just missed it. Other things I didn't know until after the book was published. Someone just pointed out that I uh, I say, actually also in this cutting, um, I say, I shall check on the strawberries then. And the word check uh, in 1814 was only used, um, there was a legal term, but we, you know, but in, in conversation, it was only used to mean stop. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it's, it's you know, it's like, I shall, ch- I shall, I shall stop the strawberries. Oh. But for m- most of my reading audience, this isn't going to be a problem. And you do have to kind of go, it's okay. It's okay. We are not actually in 1814 right now. And let that slide. Do not obsess over it. <laughs> you know, you say we're not in 1814 right now. But when I listened to your reading, I thought boy, we really are in 1814 because we're surround, all of us are surrounded by a magic that we use all the time but hardly comprehend. Uh, you mean writing? <laughs> well, I was thinking more of the electronic arts and the Internet and that especially when you talk about the uh, uh, looping the music, it's like, are you a DJ? Yes. Um, yeah, it, uh, it, it, looping the the. I sat down and thought about that one, about whether or not I should use that term, but then I thought... You know, really, if they're doing this and, and, you know, describing everything as textiles and threads, it would be a loop. And even though that has modern connotations, it has modern connotations for the same thing. It's a loop of tape or at some points a loop of wire. Um, yeah, it is. It, it is the we have a lot of things I, I jokingly call my iPod, a uh, not my iPod, my uh my Android phone, a um, magic rock, which is something I picked up from David Levine. But, you know, it's like, I have no idea how it works. It's a magic rock. <laughs> I, I love that idea and that kind of perception. And I really was enjoying the conversation, the dialogue, that you really have a, a really nice touch of, of wit. And it strikes me that... Um, you might. It feels like you are eavesdropping on Jane Austen's time. When you like eavesdrop on other people, do you like tra- in, in modern times? Do you like? Is there some kind of like translation process that goes on in your mind? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I'm. I'm I will sometimes. Uh, I'm aware of other people's conversations, and there are times when there's a particularly witty bit of dialogue that I think, aha, I need to use that. And I don't know that I actually have recycled any conversations, but I come from a theater background, and so you know, for 20 years, my stock and trade was conversations, because that is, you know, there's movement, there's action, and all of that. But when you're looking at a script, it's about the dialogue, it's about the conversation, and um, and so that carries over I think with the uh, when I when I start writing I'm much more interested in people's interactions than I am in action talk about creating the plot for this book how much did you know in advance and how much of it crept up out of the writing that's an interesting question um, I decided when I that I was going to try to see to the pants this I'm normally a um, an outliner so I started writing see to the pantsing and got into it, and I'm like, yeah, no. And, and about three chapters in, I sat, sat down and I outlined the whole thing. 
And, um, and I was writing this during NaNoWriMo National Novel Writing Month. So I was writing forward, and I started thinking, oh, oh I had planned to have these two characters hook up, but I'm mm, kind of thinking these other two. Ah, But I've got this outline, you know, and I don't have a lot of time to sit down and reconsider, and so I'll, I'll just keep writing and not worry about it. And I uh, got to the, hit the end of the month, 50,000 words, and uh, stopped and reread to see what I had. And I was like, oh, oh, yeah, I really do like the second idea better. So I threw out 20,000 words, um, 20,000 words, and went back to the point where the plot had deviated, re-outlined it from that point, and uh, started writing forward again. And, um, and was able to use a lot of the things that I had cut, but there are scenes that, uh, there's a scene in a church, never happens in this book. Um, so, so it was, uh, the, the major plot definitely was outlined, but there were revisions to it, heavy revisions. <laughs> well, this sounds interesting. It must be interesting for you to, to find your own writing process changing in the middle of the process of writing. It is, and I think actually the, the place that I screwed up, other times when I've been... Well, no, wait. Do you really feel you screwed up, or did you just find the right place? Where I screwed up was that I, when I had the instinct of, ooh, I want to change this, I didn't. I didn't stop and, and change it. And other times, you know, when I've had that reaction, I have stopped and looked at the outline and, and reconsidered. I was, I was an art major in college, and um, my art teacher talked about happy accidents, which are where the brush slips. And you look at it, and you have to decide sometimes... It's very interesting, and it's more interesting than what you had planned to do. And in those cases, you keep it. And sometimes it's interesting, but it's not actually more interesting than what you had planned to do. It just feels like that for a moment because it surprised you. And in those cases, you need to do what you had originally planned to do. So I'm used to looking at things and going, ooh, ooh, can I use this? Is this, is this a happy accident? Or is this just a mistake? Um, and in this case, the decision to not pay attention to the instinct was a mistake. One of the things that, that interests me is the kind of connection between the very mannered society of that time and the kind of rules that you need when you're writing a novel that has something like the glamour in it. Talk about how those two fed back into one another. Um, when I was working on it, the biggest challenge with the magic was not breaking history because I wanted to write a Regency romance. And as soon as you insert glamour, um, there's the potential, if I made it too powerful, that it would not become the kind of novel that would exist you know, in a Jane Austen repertoire. And, and it could potentially completely break history. Uh, an example of that um, is when I've got them weaving light. And I talk about, you know, there are several places where I talk about putting the illusion of a sunbeam. or And I may try to make it clear that this is not actually light. That um, if you stick a book into it, and I don't spend a lot of time on this because it's not something my characters would be thinking about. But if you stick a book into it, it's not actually any brighter. Because if I gave them the ability to create artificial light, they would never have developed candles. And that alone would have completely changed history. So it was a lot of reining the magic back in. It's like, no, we can't, let, we can't let them do that. And figuring out, you know, well, if I can do this, 
why can't I do that? Um, and there's, uh, because Mr. Vincent is a uh, glamorist and he's, he's very interested in how it works, um, I also had to sit down and figure out the science of the glamour so that it, uh, because it does develop and change during the course of the book and in the second book, they make, you know, it's, it's constantly evolving because I hate magic systems that are fixed and static that just doesn't even make sense to me. You know. Well, of course not. I mean, uh, tech, no technology is static. Exactly. But you see countless books where there is a tome of magic and that is every piece of magic that ever exists and you learn these spells and then you know magic. And, you know, there, then there are other books where it's constantly being experimented. That was actually one of the things that I loved about the Harry Potter books was the Weasley boys, how the Weasley twins were constantly experimenting with magic. Um, Blake Charlton's Spellwright, constantly, you know, there's research on, on his forms of magic. I love that idea. But in order to do that, the author has to know how the magic works so that things go through a logical development. You know, there are, there are a lot of people who are very interested in reading regular Regency romances. And, and yours is a Regency romance with magic. And I'm wondering about how you feel about reaching out to that broader audience. I would love it if they picked this book up. Um, I would love it if this was the gateway drug. You know, it is it is a straight-ahead Regency romance. In some ways, I suspect that people who are coming f- from romance will have an easier time with this because the magic is so restrained than people who are used to fantasy. Because although there are plot points that completely hinge on glamour, it is um, you know it's it's like needlepoint. That's the way it's treated in this world. It's like needlepoint or painting. And, you know, there is, and this is not really a spoiler, but since anyone going into it would be expecting Jane Austen, but there's no evil overlord. So, you know, it's a very quiet book. And, uh, and I think we're so trained in fantasy to be looking for the evil overlord or for, you know, let's go save the world now, that, um, that I expect a little bit of trouble for some fantasy readers who want the, the epics. Well, now that seems very interesting. To, to try to resist the, the tropes of the genre with which you've infected. Yes, it is very hard. And I do, I mean, I, I, I don't completely succeed in resisting. I, I deviate from a Jane Austen plot towards the end of the book. Um, I have, and, and that's not actually completely true. Um, I have some actions that happen in the end of the book that are things Jane Austen would have happen, but she would have them happen off stage. Um, and it's hard to talk about it without going into spoilers. But, but she would have things happen that were the province of men. And so the men would go and do that, and then the ladies would hear about it. And my challenge, because I knew a modern reader would never put up with that, was to get my heroine into a situation where she could witness those events and, and participate. <laughs> you, you are already well in, are you done with your second book and how many more do you plan? The second book has been turned in. I've just done the first pass of revisions. Uh, I still have to do the copy edit and the second, you know, do the next pass of revisions. But it's, um, it's finished. We're only contra- contracted to do two, um, but I have ideas for more. Um, I have an idea for one that's uh, much farther down the time stream that I jokingly call Gone with the Wind with Magic. <laughs> but um, but at the moment, 
there's the second book. I have a book three that's plotted, but we haven't talked about it yet. Gone with the wind with magic. That sounds like there's a there's a whole new world to explore there. Oh, it can be a lot of fun. Um, and and I, I hope that I do it at some point because I actually. Uh, the plot. I, I plotted it actually before I plotted the second book of this because I just the the it would be a lot of fun to play with um, and gives you a great opportunity to see how glamour affects the broader world because this book is so intimate we don't really get into how glamour affects everything else but but it does clearly. Why do you think it seems so natural to have Jane Austen with magic or for that matter the Antebellum South with magic? Hmm. I actually, ironically, it's not particularly um, natural to have Jane Austen with magic, uh, and the reason I say that is because Jane Austen was writing these very naturalistic dramas, these comedy of manners, as a reaction to the Gothic romances of the time, which she loathed. So she would actually, I don't think, ever write fantasy, um, which is why I say that it's the the novel she would have written if if she lived in a world where magic worked, because that's the only way you could trick her into it. Um, but there's also something to the um, the antebellum South and and uh, the Regency. There's a restraint to both, and there's an undercurrent of um, repression. Repression, exactly. Um, some of the repression is ob- <laughs> much more obvious than the others, but um, but I think that the the act of learning to work with, within the rules of society is much like trying to work within the rules of magic. There are things you can do and there are things you can't do, and trying to figure out how you can get around the restrictions is what makes fantasy and, and the Regency, for me, very interesting. Sure, because both Jane, uh, Jane Austen herself wanted to put women in, in a position of intelligence and power sneaking around the edges exactly that's exactly what it's about um and you know she's got incredibly not all of her heroines actually uh, most of them are incredibly bright women who are um who understand their role and and work around it um, but she's got a couple that are very, very meek, very mild. I'm thinking of uh, Northanger Abbey in particular. Um, and Persuasion, which is the book that I was um, using when I was writing this, is the one that uh, that I modeled my heroine on most. Um, and she's so restrained and so concerned with what is right and what is proper and her understanding of what happens to you if you deviate from that. That it's, it's really, to me, Persuasion is, is my favorite of the Austen books. I've been speaking with Mary Robinette Cowell. Her new novel is Shades of Milk and Honey. Thank you for joining me, Mary. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.